then I think most importantly was the commissioning of a new strategic concept for NATO, which is basically the Alliance's guiding document that will set all of its activities really for the next decade. Yes, investing in game-changing capabilities in themselves, but they don't exist in a vacuum. So it's really all about the Alliance's ability to bring them together and leverage them across an operating environment. But it's this question of how does NATO factor in the China challenge? Welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And in this episode, we're going to talk European security and specifically NATO. President Joe Biden recently made his first international trip, and it was to Europe. He attended his first NATO summit as president, and that was an event that was bracketed by meetings with the leaders of the other G7 countries and a bilateral meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. That makes this a great time to kind of step back and take stock of NATO, look at issues related to European security, and talk about the challenges the alliance really needs to optimize itself for going forward. To help me do that, I am joined by Lauren Speranza. She is the Director of Transatlantic Defense and Security at the Center for European Policy Analysis, which means she was watching the NATO summit closely. It is a great conversation full of some really interesting insights from Lauren. Before we get to it, though, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a second, please leave a rating or give it a review, which really does help us reach new listeners. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Lauren Speranza. Lauren, thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule and joining me for this episode of the MWI podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So you spend a considerable amount of your professional time, I'm sure, looking at European security, looking at NATO. Uh, so, you know, given the recent series of meetings, the G7, the NATO summit, and the bilateral meeting between uh, Biden and, and Putin, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. So, you know, the first question I want to ask you is, you know, specifically with respect to the NATO summit, are these the types of events where anything really meaningful or substantive tends to come from them? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start because that is really the crux of this is half of the point of these summits are really to kind of set the tone and to do some diplomatic symbolism and really keep up that political backbone of the alliance, which I think experienced so much tumult over the last four years, especially under President Trump, who was quite critical of the NATO alliance and, and of our European allies and partners in particular. So as you said, I mean, part of this summit was kind of just a get to know you effort. Um, and, and when that is the case, I mean, of course, there's limited progress in terms of big deliverables that can come out of it because it is about the handshakes and the bilateral meetings on the sidelines of the summit. But that being said, I think, you know, Biden did make the most of it in, in setting the tone and, and, you know, doing all of the right meetings in the right order. I think it was very strategic that he met with all of our European allies and partners first to really present a united front to Putin when he saw him at the end, kind of as the last stop, so that it wasn't just the US, it was very coordinated, which is different than, than the prior administration's approach. Um, but kind of beyond all of the, the handshakes, I mean, I think there were a couple of key things that really did come out of this. I mean, particularly in the NATO context, there was a lot that came out on 
um, technology in particular. There were a couple of new initiatives that were stood up, like an, a defense innovation accelerator in the NATO context, which is sort of like a, a DARPA equivalent with a new innovation fund. Um, there was a new action plan on climate change. And, and these are important because they're new areas for NATO. So I think that was kind of symbolic of the direction that the U.S. wants to take the alliance. And then I think most importantly was the commissioning of a new strategic concept for NATO, which is basically the alliance's guiding document that will set all of its activities really for the next decade, probably. So at the summit, allied leaders agreed to, to launch a new strategic concept, which will be released in 2022. And so that was the big thing. But as a result of that, it means a lot of the business was kind of kicked down the road until um, that new strategy comes out next year. You mentioned a, a sort of change in tone uh, from the last administration. Um, you know, how much does that does that matter? NATO is a large organization, a bureaucracy, which means that even as we sort of swap people in and out um, in terms of, you know, who's steering the ship, so to speak, uh, there are all sorts of, you know, cogs and wheels that keep turning in the NATO machine to keep you know, keep the organization moving and, and doing what it's what's it what it's intended to do. Um, but did that the tone that we saw in the last administration have an effect? And if so, was this summit sort of an opportunity for a meaningful reset? Was that something that we saw? It's a great question. I think there are two ways to kind of think about this. One is, as the last four years showed us, um, words do matter. And when there is so much disagreement and tumult between the highest leaders of our allied nations, that does impact everything that we're able to do together. When you can't have normal diplomacy, it does impact even what the, the civil servants and everyone underneath are, are trying to accomplish. Now, that being said, I think those four years under Trump also showed us that it is possible to maintain the transatlantic relationship through kind of regular people-to-people -people exchanges. It's not just about government-to-government, -government, but there's also transatlantic business ties and, and civil society ties that very much kept the partnership vibrant, uh, despite all of the, the high political drama that was happening at the top levels. So a little bit of both, I would say, but definitely, definitely words matter. Now, to the second part of your question, I think this reset, to use a word that... Um, not to be confused with the reset with Russia, but kind of relaunching the transatlantic partnership, I think was important because it's acknowledging that we're not just returning to business as usual, but that this is really about a new phase where the US and Europe are meant to be equal partners. And we're trying to forge a new agenda where each side comes to the table with new ideas to implement together rather than this kind of old way of the US setting the agenda and Europe kind of coming along begrudgingly. This is really about a new phase where, you know, the EU and NATO and um, the United States kind of all working together is the only way that we're gonna tackle the diverse and complex challenges that are facing the transatlantic community for the next decade. You know, there's the famous quote from uh, from Lord Ismay, the, the first NATO secretary general, who said that NATO's purpose really was to keep the Soviets out, the Americans in and the Germans down. Um, I think it's indicative of the sort of singular purpose and, and clarity of purpose that NATO had uh, at the time of its founding and for much of the Cold War. The Cold War ended and and I think it faced kind of a, a pretty fundamental rethink about its, its purpose, uh, what it should be doing. Then 9-11 happens and 
Article 5 is invoked for the first time. You see NATO um, contributing substantially uh, to, you know, for instance, the war effort in, in Afghanistan. Now we find ourselves at a time where there's this really varied set of challenges. Can you talk a little bit about what those challenges are and and the degree to which there's an, a consensus among NATO member states about about the relative prioritization that they should each receive? Well, this was really at the crux of the debates of the NATO summit, and it's at the heart of why we are commissioning a new strategic concept, exactly because of this change in the environment that NATO is not necessarily questioning what it should do, but it's how do we factor in all of these new changes and not abandon our core kind of mission, but adapt the alliance for the future. And and so this is what I think allied leaders were trying to get at with the agenda that they set for the summit. And I think we'll see this reflected in the strategic concept, but kind of at the first top, top level, maybe, and then going down, I think there's this fundamental issue that NATO is a political alliance as much as it is a military alliance. So there is this issue of shared values and principles on which the alliance rests. And we're seeing those values challenged, not just from external authoritarian powers like Russia and China, but also within the alliance. You know, there are very much um, real scenarios inside allies such as Turkey and Hungary, for example, where they're struggling with democratic backsliding or challenges to the principles that the alliance holds so dear. So, And that exposes cracks within the alliance for adversaries to manipulate. So first and foremost is kind of keeping the core solid. How do we build that allied cohesion and close those gaps and, and kind of revitalize our commitment to our shared values? Then secondly, there are the kind of the two big external threats. As you mentioned, Russia has always been there for NATO. And so there's very much still a desire to bolster defense and deterrence. I mean, the the issues that we saw with Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea and invasion of Ukraine, that was sort of in 2014, the big trigger for kind of back to basics for NATO. But that hasn't gone away. I mean, we just saw a resurgence of Russian activity at the Ukrainian border that kind of reminded us all that the Russia challenge is still there, even though China has in some ways overtaken the debate in Washington. So there's there's still some work to do on conventional defense and deterrence that NATO can't abandon. And then the other issue is, is the elephant in the room, which is China. And clearly, President Biden has made this a priority. President Trump started these debates um, during his term, and Biden has very much picked them up. But it's this question of how does NATO factor in the China challenge. And I think there's two two issues. There's the threat that the military threat that China poses in the Indo-Pacific, which is of a military nature that kind of feels more further afield for the alliance because it's not near Europe's borders. But there's also the threat that China poses to its values, to its critical infrastructure, um, all inside the European theater. So there are very much things that NATO could be doing on those types of issues, but they're a little bit different than those traditional kind of actions. So figuring out the right balance of Russia, China, and also um, the values issues. And then uh, final point is just, there's a, a couple of maybe second order effects that are new challenges for the alliance as well. Technology being one of them so that NATO can maintain its competitive edge. NATO's trying to do things on climate change um, and, and mitigate at least military emissions. And, and finally, kind of tackling the below threshold threats that we're seeing from fo foreign malign influence and building resilience to those things, whether they are, you know, things like disinformation campaigns or pandemics um, or, you know, other kinds of hybrid attacks. You mentioned values and how um, 
in in particular member states, maybe what we're seeing is sort of a backsliding on democratic values, which potentially creates sort of a gap um, or maybe even a fissure that becomes a vulnerability. This isn't the first time that we've sort of seen a fissure, you know, in the alliance, though, for instance, in the 1960s, when France sort of demonstrated some reticence over to the organization, it removed some of its forces from um, from NATO command. I mean, this is the reason why NATO headquarters are in Brussels now, because it moved from Paris in the in the late 60s during all of this. Obviously, you know, the, the circumstances that you just described um, in, in, say, Hungary or Turkey are very different from that situation. But given that we have faced sort of disagreements and tensions and, and, and uh, you know, almost schisms that represent potential vulnerabilities, how much can we learn from, from that history? Certainly. I think it's always important to look at our history and remember where we've come from and what we've been through. Um, and, and some of those examples that you pointed out definitely represented times where allies heartily disagreed with each other. And those those were divisions in the alliance. And it's no secret that just like any family, you know, members disagree with each other. We have fights. We um, we disagree publicly and loud sometimes. Um, and there's no way to completely erase that. But I think what we learn from history is we've always managed to get through it. And, and that is why NATO is so powerful. It's the most successful, longest running political military alliance in history because we are not just a transactional military bloc. It is about these shared values and principles that bind us because they're fundamental to the way we live our lives and we organize our societies. And so that has always risen above. And that's why I think, you know, there were, of course, phases where, you know, Portugal, for example, was not in line with with NATO values historically when it joined. And um, there there were, I think, some mistakes that we made in that period by not addressing those issues. And so what we're faced with today is if we continue to ignore those cracks that are starting to emerge, do we set the alliance up for failure? And can we afford to ignore those cracks and let them fester? Because that is exactly what what Putin and and other adversaries are seeking to do. So now there is a debate about how do we go to mend those cracks and what's a step too far? Because, of course, allies have different beliefs on, you know, how much NATO should be involved in uh, political issues, especially that over crossover into domestic issues. And so as much as allies like to talk about trying to promote shared standards for democratic values, um, there's a lot of disagreement over whether NATO should undertake any kinds of punitive measures that would, um, you know, sort of have imposed consequences on allies who cannot meet those democratic standards. So I think that is one of the fundamental challenges that will face um, allied leaders going forward. You've brought up a couple times the fact that technology was sort of a theme uh, that came out of, of, of this recent NATO summit. Can you expand on that? Certainly. So in today's era of, kind of strategic competition, you know, technology is becoming increasingly important to our ability to enhance collective defense. And I think part of the issue is we need a better understanding as allies and partners uh, of how to leverage and fully exploit these technologies to our advantage, because our adversaries um, and competitors are certainly doing so. Both Russia and China are investing a lot in emerging and disruptive technologies, which are changing the the way that war is fought, the way that conflict is, is waged. And so um, we have to keep up and we can't anymore take advantage, uh, take for granted our competitive edge and the kind of capability overmatch that we've enjoyed uh, for, the, for the past several decades. So we're at this stage now where it's 
we have a very shrinking window where we can adapt, uh, invest and adapt our capabilities to leverage technology. And so I think we are now seeing this recognition. We're starting to see um, a convergence around a couple of key defense tech priorities. I think it was very telling that technology was raised in kind of almost every different summit format that took place. Uh, we talked about it at the G7. We talked about it, um, the UK and the US, when they signed this new Atlantic charter on the eve of the G7, they included a landmark technology pact. The EU-US summit established a new technology and trade council to have a place to establish standards and talk about supply chain resilience, especially for emerging technologies. And then at NATO, um, at the summit, as I mentioned, they created a new defense accelerator as well as a NATO innovation fund to help spur some of this innovation, especially because it's no longer being driven by the defense departments and defense ministries. Now, most of that innovation is being driven by the private sector. So if our, our allied governments um, are not being active in trying to set priorities and, and talk about capability requirements, you know, we might not end up with, with the right capabilities that we need. And what's worse, we all may end up with different capabilities that can't talk to each other. And so this interoperability challenge of being able to develop um, emerging technologies for defense applications, many of them also have civilian applications, which adds another layer of, of complications, is going to be very key. And that's why I think we're it's very positive sign that we're starting to coordinate on these issues so that we can collectively take advantage of them. And, and finally, I think is the ethical side of technology, which is, you know, how do we agree to um, shared standards of how we can employ and use these technologies? And of course, there is a democratic values, once again, component of this, um, because I think Russia and China would use these technologies in different ways than we would prefer them to be used. So how do we set these rules of the road and ensure that we have a digital democratic domain rather than one that is shaped by authoritarian uh, tendencies. Was there any discussion at the summit, or maybe is there discussion happening more generally about the sources of technology or or, or maybe technological infrastructure? Um, you know, I think many listeners will remember that there was a fair bit of hand-wringing about uh, the potential that Huawei was going to essentially build um, the UK's 5G infrastructure. Uh, I am currently in Italy, and if you walk around Rome, you'll see billboards advertising Huawei's smartwatches. Uh, if you go to shopping centers, you know there are Xiaomi Telecom uh, stores. Uh, these are popular phones in in Italy. That's obviously very different from what we see in the U.S. Um, is there any sort of tension between allies like the United States who have made their position on on this pretty clear and those who look at the situation and say, hey, this is a, an inexpensive source of investment in our technological infrastructure that, that we need to sort of keep pace in, in, in a rapidly changing world? Well, you bring up a, a key point that is certainly at the heart of the technology debate, which is this kind of foreign penetration of our own technological capabilities, whether that's in, in critical infrastructure, 5G infrastructure, as you mentioned, or even kind of making key parts or uh, components for broader technological systems or military systems that we use. And the concern there, of course, is that if it's infrastructure, for example, you know, and, and China's building the infrastructure, that there could be backdoors built into that infrastructure that would facilitate cyber espionage or data theft or um, manipulation of that infrastructure in some way or whatever is running through that infrastructure that has 
real security implications. And, and as you mentioned, of course, some of these nations, especially um, nations that are struggling economically, um, especially after the pandemic, but but even before then, that are looking for this kind of cheap uh, cheap rates from China. China off, often offers these kind of enticing infrastructure packages with you know low low rates, and um, it's very enticing. And so I think what has been happening over the last three years has been this reckoning of trying to understand across the Atlantic these security implications. And I think we've certainly seen a sea change. Europe has certainly acknowledged and moved closer to the U.S. stance on the risk of these um, this technology penetration, particularly by China. But we're still seeing allies having varying levels of willingness to compromise their activities. So, for example, some have come out heartily and, and the U.K. kind of was was much more much, much closer to the U.S. in terms of being willing to ban 5G and, and things like that. But uh, sorry, ban Huawei's participation in 5G, but Germany, for example, has not. And so I think this will be one interesting dynamic to watch is how close are allies willing to to move the dial on this issue and, and whether we're actually able to take meaningful action that will limit foreign penetration of technologies and critical infrastructure, because many many of those decisions will come with severe economic consequences. So I think it's it's a trade-off between security and economy in some way. And so what we have to do as the alliance and as allied leaders are to provide alternatives so that we have different ways of mitigating those risks and other places to invest and capabilities to, to use and to build shared awareness of these challenges so that we're not caught flat-footed and only catch these vulnerabilities after they're so far deep in our network that we can't do anything about it. You know, even I think casual observers of NATO will be familiar with uh, a, a particular metric, the defense spending targets, uh, whereby each member state is expected to spend 2% of its GDP on defense. Um, it's, you know, it, it earns states that don't hit those targets a certain amount of criticism. Um, you know, this this notion that Europeans aren't aren't doing enough to provide for their own security. I recently had the uh, the opportunity to talk to and record a, a podcast episode with uh, General Ben Hodges, former commander of U.S. Army Europe, and and a colleague of yours who is the co-author of a book, um, a new book that uh, that has just come out called "Future War and the Defense of Europe." And one of the things that I found interesting is is he raised the issue that you know the book raised the issue that alongside the you know the question of how much our country spending is how, what percentage of what they are spending on defense is actually oriented toward technology, uh, you know, developing and integrating high technology, high tech military capabilities. Can you talk about that uh, a little bit within the alliance? Is that something that came up at the summit? Is that a discussion that, you, you know, you're seeing a lot of? Well, 2% itself is a contentious issue always. And I think there's, you know, a general understanding that it's kind of a, um, a metric that doesn't really mean very much. It's a little bit arbitrary in the way it was conceived. And it's difficult because, you know, it's easy to understand. People like it. It's measurable. Um, but it doesn't necessarily comprehensively value what every ally is bringing to the table. And sometimes that 2% doesn't capture things like um, cybersecurity spending, for example, that might not come from a traditional defense mil uh, defense or military budget, like maybe it's housed somewhere else in the government. And if that that money doesn't get counted towards 2%, um, but we're still benefiting from those cyber capabilities. So there are, there are always nuances of, of what's 
2% doesn't capture. And, and I think now we're starting to see after the pandemic as GDP is going down, um, we're not getting as much bang for our buck in terms of capabilities. So there's also now growing concerns over whether that's the right kind of metric and whether we should be including other kinds of things, other kinds of benchmarks. As you said, technology could be one of them and innovation. Um, you know, 2% right now also includes 20% on equipment. So what kind of equipment? Maybe we need to rethink what that looks like. Um, Germany has some ideas on on how do we also include things like development spending that could impact broader stability rather than traditional defense. So I think there's there are differing views on how to approach that. And of course, the the allies that are spending two percent, you know, are very much happy with with how that places them strategically in the alliance. But I think there is this recognition that we don't want to tear it up because we all committed to it and we should deliver on it. But at the same time, there are probably ways to have a more nuanced approach to 2% that would actually yield more results. And, you know, in, instead of thinking about, about dollar amounts or percentages, think about capabilities that we're bringing to the table. So if I want to buy a brigade or I want to buy this artificial intelligence, intelligence capability, what does that look like? And so I think introducing those new metrics might be something that that we'll see come out of the, the Biden administration's leadership of the alliance because they have indicated that they're opening to revisiting that debate. You know, in the, the last major conflict that, that preceded uh, the creation of NATO, uh, World War II, in many ways within kind of alliance structures, military forces were, you know, plug and play. You could have... Um, you could have an an Indian brigade in a British division, or alongside a New Zealand battalion. Um, you know, you had you had large combat formations from various allies that fell under the command of of um, you know a headquarters from from a partner nation, from an allied nation. Uh, as the character of warfare changes and gets more expensive, at least within you know what I think is the dominant paradigm in the United States in terms of defense thinking. Um, what about countries that don't have the resources to keep up with that change in character and, and increasing cost of, you know, the conduct of war? How best how best can they contribute? It's a really interesting question. And I think General Hodges' book, which you mentioned, he's a wonderful, well, wonderful colleague and mentor. And um, he gets at some of this in, in his book with uh, Julian Lindley French and, and John Allen. Um, I think there is this increasing... A recognition now that yes, we can't expect all allies, you know, the Baltics cannot contribute the same things that the UK could contribute to the alliance, for example. And so I think especially as we move towards an increasingly high tech or algorithmic centric kind of warfare environment, um, it's going to be about increased specialization. So for example, a small nation like Estonia has actually become best in class in terms of cyber capabilities. And, and we hear this example a lot, but they've done a lot in terms of fostering public-private partnership and really trying to put all their efforts towards being really good at this one, but important um, capability set. And so they can bring a lot of expertise and even capacity building capabilities to the Alliance um, in the cyber domain. And so I think that's one example that if we can start to have other nations do that, and there are other examples of this too, um, you know, that have specialized capabilities. And that's what I think the future is going to be is um, not necessarily having everyone do everything, but having certain allies 
you know, really invest in certain technological capabilities or, or niche capabilities and bring those to the alliance and then let the bigger nations take care of some of the things like, you know, strategic airlift and kind of big enabling functions that, you know, allow a, a conventional war to be fought. Um, now, of course, everyone has to do their fair share in terms of investing and, and driving R&D towards those capabilities and making sure that the capabilities work together. And I think one of the you mentioned a little bit about the framework that NATO provides for this. And I think this this concept of JADC2, which kind of provides the the network background to link all these types of capabilities together so that your drones and your sensors and your um, your warfighter and your conventional capabilities can all talk to each other is really what it's going to be about. So it's, yes, investing in game-changing capabilities in themselves, but they don't exist in a vacuum. So it's really all about the alliance's ability to bring them together and leverage them across an operating environment. You know, it can be hard sometimes, I think, to take a whole lot from from these sorts of meetings, like the NATO summit. Um, interactions between leaders are pretty carefully choreographed. Tensions are downplayed. But understanding that there are always going to be some disagreements in, you know, within or between the, the various member states of, of NATO in your opinion, is, is there still does there still seem to be an appetite, uh, and and if so, you know, how unanimous is that appetite for NATO to be an American-led alliance? I think it's an interesting time to ask this question because we do keep hearing this saying that America is back, and this has been one of Joe Biden's, uh, President Biden's sort of main messages as he takes up the reins of, of U.S. leadership, and that has been kind of his real takeaway from the summit is we want European allies to know that America is back, America is ready to lead. But I think there's still a lot of questions about what does that really look like? I think there's some skepticism among European allies over whether we can really trust American leadership. I mean, is President Biden perhaps an intermission between, you know, a President Trump and another kind of more isolationist or kind of Trumpian America first type figure that could, you know, sort of undo the progress that we might make over over the next four years. And so it makes it difficult, I think, to really lean into this idea of American leadership again, because we're just not sure what that will look like in the future. And that's creating a lot of anxiety, understandably so, within European circles. And I do think we, we've had all these conversations now, particularly led by the French and moderated somewhat by the Germans about this notion of European strategic autonomy and what does that mean? Autonomy from what? Is it from the US or is it just a more capable Europe because Europe needs to be able to do its fair share and take care of its own security interests? And I think we've heard from President Joe Biden in clearer terms than we've heard from any other sitting US president, kind of endorsing the strategic importance of the EU. And it was, you know, very telling. I think that he talked about the key role that the EU will play, not just politically, but also economically, and even to an extent, trying to lead some of the defense developments. Because of course, NATO is the key framework that we want transatlantic defense efforts to come through. But the EU has critical roles to play in terms of driving defense investment in line with NATO capability targets. It obviously has legislative powers, which NATO doesn't have, so it can help to actually enforce standards that NATO lays out. So I think there's a lot of co complementary capabilities that they had. And for the first time, we're hearing some messaging from Washington that's traditionally kind of very, 
EU skeptic about maybe let's actually leverage the EU capabilities um, as long as it's in a way that is supportive of NATO. So really building up the European pillar of NATO, even if that investment kind of happens through through the EU. And this, I think, is it's all about how how we do it and making sure it's done in a in a thoughtful and not a duplicative or um, reducing way from from NATO efforts. But it, it's really interesting, and I think it actually proves that a uh, a transatlantic bond, a strong transatlantic bond, and European autonomy are not necessarily mutually exclusive. We do want a strong Europe that can do more on defense. It's just about doing it in a way that serves transatlantic interests as well as European interests. Um, so I think there's a lot more debate to be had there. Um, and I think if we had not perhaps had um, a President Biden, that European strategic autonomy in the French view could have gone off in a different direction, perhaps more disconnected from the U.S. But um, I'm glad to see that this is sort of where the debates are going. And I'll, I'll be curious to watch how this all plays out. You know, NATO was uh, in many ways at its founding a very purpose-built organization. We've we've sort of touched on that. Um, does it remain purpose-built for the challenges that uh, the that the alliance and its various member states face today? Uh, maybe in other words, if it does need to be updated, reformed in order to meet those challenges, you know, is is the degree of reform required evolutionary, or is it something you know, is it revolutionary? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. I mean, for some of the the NATO bureaucrats and folks that have spent a lot of time in the transatlantic community, I mean, these initiatives that just came out in the, the last summit communique could be seen as somewhat transformative or, or revolutionary. But I don't think it's about ripping up the NATO charter and starting from scratch. I mean, we have good bones and a really great history um, of success to build on. And NATO is very much still relevant today. Um, as much as it was in the past. And I think NATO has done a lot to kind of incrementally adapt. Um, and it's pretty remarkable if you think about how much NATO has been able to change within its current form to meet new challenges. I mean, as you kind of alluded to before, we adapted to a post-Cold War environment. We did some out-of-area stuff, some CT stuff. We came back when when Crimea happened. We went back to basics and rebuilt you know, the biggest overhaul of NATO's defense and deterrence since the Cold War. Since then, we've made a lot of efforts to take on new issues like cyber. I mean, we've declared that a cyber attack could trigger Article 5, that that would be kind of covered under NATO's collective defense charter. Um, we have taken on new things like hybrid threats by creating things like counter hybrid support teams. We just at this last summit established a climate action plan where NATO is going to do a big assessment of all of its um, infrastructure and assets to try and you know do its part to contribute to net zero in terms of emissions. We've done some new things on technology. We've tried to revamp our partnerships. And I think that's one thing that also might be um, a new adaptation that we see coming down the line, especially as we draw down in Afghanistan. There is a, a recognition that we, A, need to keep the partnership framework alive because that was one of the big ways that NATO allies kept operating together. And also that we need to bring in new partners including in the Indo-Pacific, as we think about China as a challenge. So we're doing things to adapt our, our partnership structures. Um, we saw NATO even contributing to things like the pandemic when it delivered you know, critical aid and PPE to allies and partners in need. So it's doing all of these new things that wouldn't traditionally be considered NATO activities at the core. But all of this is helping and has gradually helped to adapt NATO for, for today and for the future. And I think this 
what kind of culminated at this summit was what they called the NATO 2030 process, which was kind of this recognition that we do need to make some more fundamental changes to what NATO is doing to prepare for the next decade. And that involves bringing in young people too, including those who were born after the Cold War and don't have this kind of traditional connection to, to NATO's core military mission and trying to get their thoughts on what will be the threats, not just now, but 10 years from now. And how do we get NATO more ahead of the curve and preparing for those threats today? So I guess in short, I think, um, you know, NATO is in a good place. And I think we are on the right track in terms of adapting the alliance to ensure that it's fit for purpose today and tomorrow. Um, and I'm for such a big and complicated alliance, I think it's really impressive what it's been able to achieve. Um, and as President Biden said, you know, if, if NATO didn't exist today, we would have to invent it and build it. So I think that's very much a testament to its, its relevance today. Well, I think that is a great point uh, to end on. Uh, Lauren, I want to thank you again for uh, for making time to uh, to have this conversation. It's a fascinating subject. I find it fascinating. It's obviously of um, increasing importance. It certainly gets uh, increasing attention. I think our listeners will will appreciate uh, hearing your your thoughts. So thank you very much. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a really great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again.